Hello, it's Cheryl Atkinson here with another episode of Full Measure After Hours. And joining me, I'm very lucky to have him, is the incredible James Rosen. That's your title, the incredible James yes, Rosen. Yes, I have business cards that, that <laughs> say the incredible. What is your real title here at Sinclair? My actual clumsily long uh, official title is National Investigative Reporter for the Sinclair Broadcast Group. But I prefer just reporter. Okay, and I'll just call you incredible. <laughs> I, I will not quarrel <laughs> with this. So what I thought we'd talk about today, you spent quite a bit of time covering the machinations of the impeachment effort against President Trump. And I think a lot of people probably tune out or maybe they get a little bit lost when they hear the coverage. And it, it might be worthwhile to go over some of this in kind of simple terms and explain some of your reflections about what's going on and Let's start with the notion that impeachment in general, and you've written a book about this, right? Just the Watergate impeachment process? I wrote a book called The Strong Man, John Mitchell and the Secrets of Watergate. It actually focused less on the impeachment part of Watergate, which happened toward the back end of the scandal prior to President Nixon's resignation. I focused on the origins of the Watergate scandal, what was really the purpose of the Watergate break-in and, and wiretapping of the Democratic National Committee headquarters, who orchestrated the cover-up, what was the real role of the Central Intelligence Agency, etc. But obviously that will familiarize someone with, with impeachment. Okay, so before we look at today, is there something from that research you did and the book that you wrote in terms of impeachment that informs us into this process today? Absolutely. Um, in fact, I would go a little bit farther back in time before the Watergate scandal to the year 1970, which, of course, was during the Nixon presidency. At the time, the Republican House minority leader, a congressman from Michigan named Gerald R. Ford, uh, launched an abortive impeachment effort against a sitting Supreme Court justice at the time, William O. Douglas, who had been seated on the Supreme Court for decades and was very far left, um, even by the standards of the 60s and 70s. And did they, in essence... Is it, is it agreed upon they kind of wanted him out because he was far left, or was yeah, there something else? it was a political uh, movement. Um, and the pretext that, that Congressman Ford cited at the time was, uh, if memory serves, that Justice Douglas had published some of his poetry in a hippie nudist magazine called Evergreen. Um, it didn't really go anywhere. But during the course of, those, uh, of the effort, uh, reporters asked uh, Congressman Ford what an impeachable offense is. And Gerald Ford's response has echoed down through the ages. He said, an impeachable offense is whatever the hell the House of Representatives decides it is. And I think that's instructive for today's impeachment crisis, as it was during the Nixon and Clinton crises, uh, because uh, we have to remember that impeachment is not a criminal proceeding. It does not take place in a court of law with all the rules and procedures we associate with criminal trials. It is rather, inherently and fundamentally, a political proceeding. Tell me if I have this straight, as the observer here who doesn't know nearly as much as you do. Oh, please, Cheryl. <laughs> the impeachment itself, I think some people think, oh, if the House impeaches the president, in fact, there was a poll that recently said a lot of people think that means the president has to resign or is out of office. Or is guilty or what have you. But in fact, that's sort of the equivalent of an indictment or a charge or an accusation. Correct. Not a conviction. And then it would go to the Senate, which would be sort of like the trial to decide if the president really is guilty of anything. Absolutely correct. And most recently we saw a Senate trial of a sitting president in the presidency of Bill Clinton. 
uh, where he was acquitted uh, in, in relation to his conduct. Was um, that a Democratic Senate or a Republican Senate that said Clinton was not guilty? It was a Democratic Senate, okay. if memory serves. Um, and it was a Republican House that impeached him. So we sort of have the reverse That's now. Right. We have a Democratic House and a Republican Senate. That's right. And looking at today's scene, uh, it's pretty clear that the House Democrats, uh, with the full backing of the Speaker Nancy Pelosi, are moving full throttle to vote up one or more articles of impeachment against President Trump. And uh, when that happens, if even one article of impeachment is voted uh, up by the full House floor, uh, if a majority of the House of Representatives votes to approve even one article of impeachment, then officially the President has been impeached and the Senate shall conduct a trial. What's interesting in the current setting is that uh, the Senate Majority Leader, uh, Mitch McConnell, has said um, that, yes, he would feel obligated to bring the matter before the Senate, uh, quite unlike how he felt when there was a vacancy after the death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia uh, during an election cycle, and, and Senator McConnell felt no need to bring Merrick Garland up for a vote. Uh, that seat was eventually filled by the conservative jurist, Neil Gorsuch. But here, McConnell is saying he would bring it before the Senate. But it's been interesting to read, I didn't know this, that one of the options for the Senate, if President Trump is indeed impeached, is simply to hold a vote to dismiss the charges without a trial. And that seems to many observers the likeliest uh, course if indeed the president is impeached. Well, even so, and you can correct me on this if I'm wrong, the conviction, as it were, in the Senate, so if the charge goes to a jury of some kind in the Senate, would be two-thirds. They would need 67 senators, not just 51. Correct, yeah. So that's a pretty uphill battle, even though there are some Republicans who don't like President Trump. I just don't know how you get that many. There's there, That's an uphill battle for even the most mundane legislation these days in our polarized political climate. Okay, you used a word a minute ago when you're talking historically, a pretext, the pretext that was used for the Supreme Court justice. And I think a lot of people would see or argue that the President Trump impeachment process is a pretext in terms of not saying, I'm not saying, and I don't know enough to say whether there's something there that's illegal or badly enough politically that he shouldn't have done it. But I will say that, you know, as his first day in office, he took office, there were some Democrats who said he should be impeached before they even really had anything specific they could impeach for. And it seems to me, I would argue, there's just been a series of attempts finding out which would be the best way they could go, especially as he comes up for re-election, to saddle him with an impeachment accusation. If you go all the way back to the day that Donald Trump declared his candidacy for the presidency in June of 2015, there arose almost immediately um, a, a what, what has come to be called a never-Trump movement. Uh, at that point... By Republicans. It was limited to the precincts of the Republican establishment. Um, as Donald Trump continued to rack up victory after victory in the early primaries and caucuses, um, that... that never-Trump movement expanded beyond the Republican Party and clearly um, came to reside in uh, the upper echelons of the intelligence community, and particularly the FBI. Uh, and so uh, it pays here to remember the, the text messages that were exchanged between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page of the, of the FBI, who were senior officials there, uh, intimately involved not only with each other, as it turned out, but with the investigation into Hillary Clinton's email server, um, and then with the Russia-Trump probe. 
and one famous text message between them spoke of a quote-unquote insurance policy that could be pursued in the event that Trump actually, Mr. Trump actually won the election. Um, he did win, um, and there are those historians of all of this who will point out that text citing a, a mysterious impeach, uh, uh, insurance policy against President Trump taking office. Then it moved to the Electoral College, you recall, and there was an effort to... That's right. To there was almost like this thought for a moment that, oh my goodness, the electorals are not going to vote. The ones that are supposed to vote for Trump won't, and he won't right. be able to take office. I mean, it, went, it started in the, in the primaries, then it went to the convention, uh, it went to the FBI, it went to the Electoral College, and at all points Mr. Trump prevailed and finally was sworn in. And as you just pointed out, immediately upon taking office, some of his uh, conversations with heads of state were leaked. Um, and um, in any case, um, I, I take your question to mean that uh, there are, I think, large segments of the American electorate who will regard this current impeachment crisis as just the latest in a long series of efforts designed either to thwart Mr. Trump from taking office or to evict him from office once he was sworn in. So I would argue as part of that, just again, as an observer, and I try to talk to a lot of different people, you know, liberals, conservatives, people who consider themselves apolitical, it seems to me the strategy may not work the way Democrats hope, partly because this has been such a steady drumbeat. If suddenly an impeachment charge came up at this stage in his presidency, and it was really the first one, and they made it a very serious question, it might kind of smack people in the face, even Trump supporters, and say, wow, what's going on? But I feel like what I'm hearing is it's not changing many minds. People who hate Trump hate Trump. People who love Trump are getting perhaps motivated and entrenched by these continued, what they see as charges or pretexts, if you will, to try to remove him from office. So there is be a, interesting. There is a boy who cried wolf aspect to it. And the fact that, it, that, that the Trump-Ukraine scandal seemed to materialize out of nowhere almost immediately after the conclusion of the Mueller probe, uh, which was capped off by Robert Mueller's ineffectual testimony on Capitol Hill, does lend to a lot of objective eyes, uh, if any are left out there, uh, an appearance to the Trump-Ukraine scandal of it being something of a manufactured event. That said... Well, wait. So I'm going to ask you, because I think you're going there next. I'm going to posit something that would seem to lend itself toward Trump, at least in his mind, thinking he didn't do something wrong. But I think you also have some counterpoints to that on on the phone call to the Ukrainian president and so on. So my point is, you just said the Mueller investigation had just ended. This call were to believe, if it was illegal or highly inappropriate, that President Trump, right after he got sort of off the hook with the Mueller investigation, would have made a call to Ukraine's president with people in the room listening, knowing it's being transcribed, knowing that there are people in deep state establishment, if you want to call it, who are trying to get him, who may leak these conversations. He would have to know all of that and still be doing something that is illegal or inappropriate or something like that. So to me, that argues for the point that, at least in his mind, he didn't think he was doing something that they could catch him on or that was wrong. Now, I know you have some counterpoints to that. I think there's two things to be said about this. Uh, one is that I think it's been demonstrated over the course of his presidency that Mr. Trump doesn't always know uh, what is wrong um, in, in a political sense, in a cultural sense, and can sometimes do these things 
without really fully recognizing how wrong they might be. I'll give one example, um, or two examples perhaps. When, when President Trump suggested that um, his critics among what is known as the squad, the four Democratic House freshmen, who are three of whom are, are people of color, women of color, um, when he suggested that they should go home to their own countries and fix those countries, um, there was uh, a slight fallacy in the criticism that descended upon him at that time. The president's critics have always said, going back to when he started running in June of 2015, that he's unfit for the office in large measure because he has no sense of history, he has no sense of, of propriety, he has uh, no sense of tact, um, and, and, and we should have a president who, who possesses those things. Um, you can't have it both ways. So that when he says something like, well, those, those people of color should go home to their own home countries, his critics again immediately descended on him to say, he knows full well that saying go home to your own home country to a person of color is a racist trope, and it has been a racist trope in use for 150 years, going back to the time of Kipling and so forth. And, and I don't think he actually knows enough about literature or history or, or cultural history to understand uh, why some people might find um, uh, a, a, a message from him like that to be offensive. That's one example. The second example uh, would be when, uh, for example, the, the, the president called then-FBI director James Comey into his office, or he was already in the office with other people, and waved everyone but Comey out of the room and said to him, I hope you can see your way toward letting this thing with Mike Flynn, the national security advisor, go. Now, he didn't say... Um, I command you to let it go. I instruct you to let it go. He said, I hope you can see your way to letting it go. He's a good man. So it skirts the line of what might be considered by some eyes obstruction of justice. Especially if, if the guy you're saying it to is your enemy and not your friend. And by that I mean if it's someone who likes you, supports you, he may not see it as something that's inappropriate versus somebody who doesn't like you. Right. So... Um, it's quite possible that you know, in the in the case of the Zelensky call, uh, Ukrainian the, president. Yes, uh, which was where we started with this. Um, even though the president would know, as a matter of course, that many ears and eyes were on that call as it was being conducted, he might do something that uh, he doesn't understand to be inappropriate, but which might be inappropriate. We also have to say that this is a man who has demonstrated some difficulties, and I mean to cast no stones here. All of us are flawed. All of us are human. Uh, but, but he has demonstrated some difficulties with impulse control. And so um, and, and this, is, this is evidenced in some of his uses of language, some of his conduct, um, both before and after his, and during his presidency. And so I think um, to your original question of why would he have done something improper if he knew so many people were on the call, he might not have been able to help himself. And then I tend to think, without having any insight into this way the presidency works with him and his mind, I still think if he were making a call, prior to the call, there would have been a discussion with officials, things to say, things not to say, what's on the agenda. And I, I suspect somewhere, if we were able to see them, there would be notes or at least there was a discussion of what was going to be addressed and that that was on the list. But you're suggesting, and it could very well be true, maybe he just sort of blurted this out, you know, out of the if blue. If you read the transcript... Which, which we should say, sorry, the blurting out was him encouraging the president of Ukraine to do some sort of investigation into alleged corruption... Involving former Vice President Biden and his son Hunter Biden, who had business dealings uh, in Ukraine. 
And I'm sure that the House Democrats who are driving the impeachment inquiry will be eager to subpoena any and all such talking points as would have been prepared in advance, as is typical for a call with a head of state. And in this case, I doubt any of the talking points said, be sure to, to, to bring up Joe and Hunter Biden. Um, it, it is also worth noting, uh, in, uh, to be fair to the president, that if you read the declassified National Security Council transcript of the Trump-Zelensky call from July 25, in which this occurred, um, two things. Number one is, um, the president really goes into this do-us-a-favor thing, which first involves uh, theories that suggest that Ukraine had more to do with the origins of the Trump-Russia probe uh, than is, than is uh, widely known, and then moved into the Bidens. Um, he, he doesn't bring it up until the first mention of Russia in the call, and that is by Zelensky. Secondly, uh, the president asks for the favor about uh, the DNC servers and what Ukraine might have known uh, about the origins of the Trump-Russia probe. And then President Zelensky makes a point of saying that any investigations will be conducted openly and candidly. And is only, it is only then that President Trump makes his request about the Bidens. And what, what's the significance of that? The significance of that? of that is that Mr. Trump, in asking for an investigation of the Bidens, really a revival of, an, of a Ukrainian investigation into the Bidens, does so only after he has been served notice that the Ukrainians would only do these things in an, in a, in a, in an open and candid manner. So the president could plausibly claim that having been so informed, he was only asking for an open and candid investigation of the Bidens and nothing underhanded. All right, I want to bring up a couple more points I hope that aren't more confusing than not. But I think when we talk about Russia and Ukraine, and I did a little bit of investigating reporting on this in the past two years or so, it's worth noting that, in, that there are a lot of political figures in Washington, D.C. who have been lobbied and paid by Russian or Ukrainian officials to further their particular interests and viewpoints. And that in general, with some exceptions, the Russians seem to think they would fare better under Republicans in terms of policy and things that they would get, whether true or not. The Ukrainians seem to think, at least the non-Russia-connected Ukrainians, seem to think they would do better with Democrats pulling strings. And in fact, the Ukrainians were connected to the Democratic National Committee and doing certain actions during 2016, as the Russians have been connected with some Republicans. So... Sometimes I think all of this fuss going on in Washington is really sort of a proxy for Democrats and Republicans and Ukraine versus Russia. And we're kind of foreign politics is playing out on our political stage in a way that gets lost as we, you know, get mired in all of these details. What if, do you think of that? <laughs> <laughs> if, if the schemata that you just outlined is accurate... It would represent a, a kind of a scrambling of where traditionally these various power centers have lined up, because uh, never throughout the history of the Cold War were the Republicans anywhere presumed to be uh, more sympathetic to Russian interests than Democrats. But okay, Roger Stone and other interests have been connected to the Russian interests, and in fact, some of the lobbyists, the Democrats as well as Republicans, but definitely Republican lobbyists, were connected to Russian interests in Ukraine versus the non-Russian interests in Ukraine. So maybe it's whoever pays the most money. I think that's really operative here because, first of all, we can't isolate Russia and Ukraine as the sole countries out there that are 
engage in this kind of um, very expensive lobbying ca uh, campaigns in the United States. Uh, the Saudis pay a lot of money to uh, former officials and lobbyists, and so do the Qataris, their, their current enemy. Um, so all of those foreign countries out there are spending lavishly in the United States to Im influence policy. And if you were to really examine all of the the uh, FARA filings, and uh, which is uh, the Foreign Agents Registration Act, um, and you were to look at all the lobbying disclosures and so forth, I think you would find that uh, former Republican office holders could be uh, out there lobbying for Ukrainian interests and former Democrats for Russian interests. It really is, um, as you say, a, a lot of money floating out there and probably from the highest source uh, without much respect to ideology anymore. But President Trump in particular has scrambled a lot of the ideology that drove Republican politics and policy throughout the Cold War. So uh, the, the coziness with Russia might be one example, but the sudden conservative tolerance for deficits is another. Um, and, you know, it, it, he is a singular figure, and he cuts a wide swath. Yeah, that's a maddening whole separate topic we should do another podcast on, that it seems I circulated something on Twitter the other day about the national debt and the deficit, you don't hear anybody talk about that anymore. It doesn't even matter which party you're, you're speaking of. And I actually think that's been quite true for years, even before Trump. It's, that seems to have just floated off into the Neverland. But one other thing I wanted to mention, again, you may not agree with this. These are just the twisted things that go on in my mind as I think about Washington politics. Let the record reflect <laughs> that I'm slightly backing away my chair from, from the twisted individual. Come forward. <laughs> um, if you look at the accusations against Trump, he's pretty much been defensive for a long time on the notion that that he tried to obstruct with the investigation into him you know, during Trump and Russia, when in fact, if he was innocent, it's really not obstructing. You could argue if he were innocent, it's simply trying to prove his innocence, not obstructing justice. It's making sure people who are trying to, in his view frame him are exposed. But same with this political interference that he's accused of making the call to Ukraine and interfering with the 2020 election by getting one of his opponents, Joe Biden, investigated or bringing something bad to light. But on the other hand, if this whistleblower, there's a second whistleblower in the mix, but if the first whistleblower, it's true, was or is connected to Joe Biden and the Biden campaign or Biden when he was vice president, and Biden is now behind, or at least people interested in Biden are behind these accusations against Trump, hmm. couldn't the reverse be said that they're interfering with the election, that they are looking for political dirt or political reasons to, uh, to trash Trump? So I kind of see these accusations as mirror images of one another. I don't think you often hear that reported in the same way, but I, I in see a, it. In a, in a poisonous funhouse we call American politics. Um, let's put it this way. Um, we don't know the identity of the original whistleblower that kicked off this impeachment inquiry. Um, as of this podcast, As we of don't this know. podcast, we don't know. Um, I've spoken to uh, people on the House Intelligence Committee who do believe they do know. Um, and if it's true that uh, this whistleblower is, as alleged, a, a partisan Democrat, um, uh, the way that this was rolled out, may, uh, it may come to turn out that um, the Democrats, in, in setting this perfect trap for the president, 
um, so as to be able to go forward with impeachment, have tripped over their own shoelaces to some extent. And the reason I say this is as follows, and this is something that we covered in my story for full measure with Cheryl Atkinson, which airs on Sinclair stations on Sundays. Um, Chairman Schiff, the uh, Chairman Adam Schiff, the chair of the House Intelligence Committee, Democrat. Democrat from California, originally said that he um, learned about the existence of a whistleblower complaint but was not told anything about its substance through formal channels on September the 9th. Uh, yet on that same day, the chairman was able to announce new hearings into Rudy Giuliani and Ukraine. What does that tell you? It tells us that somehow he knew to go right to the heart of the whistleblower's complaint without supposedly even knowing what it was about, okay? Um, and um, the chairman's office later acknowledged the New York Times that, in fact, the whistleblower had contacted Chairman Schiff's staff and outlined the substance of his complaint before he filed it on August the 12th. So why would okay. Schiff make all these appearances? And he then went on television well after September 9, into September 25, claiming he didn't know still the substance Playing of the complaint. Playing dumb, in essence. Well, um, uh, misleading the public and misleading the Republicans on the, on the Intelligence Committee as well. Now that that has been established, the, when I say that they've tripped over their own shoelaces, uh, the, the Republicans are now demanding that if articles of impeachment are drawn up and approved against President Trump, and this has to, in fact, go to a Senate trial, that Chairman Schiff and the whistleblower, for whom anonymity would usually be guaranteed throughout the process, will themselves become fact witnesses in determining how this complaint was handled and what are the, motiva the true motivations of the whistleblower. Um, and so, if this was, in some sense, a, a democratic concoction, which is what the director of the National Economic Council, Larry Kudlow, said to me in a recent interview, mm -hmm. um, ultimately the Democrats will have to account for that in any trial setting, and the anonymity of the whistleblower will not be able to be maintained. So here's a strange part of that. Let's say it was a democratic concoction. It makes it sound as though it was pretty well thought out. But if it was so well thought out, why was Schiff falsely denying that he knew about the complaint when really it wouldn't have mattered if he'd have just admitted he'd known. There was nothing, from what I gather and what you've said, there's nothing illegal if the whistleblower had gone to Schiff's committee first. Why is Schiff in denial in something he must know if he'd have thought about it could be proven that he wasn't telling the truth about? Um, only Adam Schiff can answer that, but the, the menu of possibilities here is rather short. Um, either he... Um, didn't think it through, uh, or he is subject to human frailty like the rest of us, uh, or, or perhaps subject to the same impulse control problems that President Trump has. I was just thinking that. <laughs> well, also, I think the possibility is raised. If you're Adam Schiff and you don't want people to know the whistleblower has come to you, it makes me at least ask the question, was there more than just an information session held with yeah. this whistleblower and with Schiff? Or was there some contact that turned into the idea that we will write up a whistleblower complaint for you and, and engineer this in a very political way that they didn't want exposed, but seems to me they would have had to have understood would be down the road? Republicans on the House Intelligence Committee have told me that they believe that there were more contacts between the whistleblower and the Schiff staff than have been uh, acknowledged. And moreover, that the whistleblower goes way back with the House Intelligence Committee Democratic staff. In our story for full measure, we have 
uh, an interview uh, excerpted f uh, with uh, the ranking Republican on the Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes, all Republican from California, um, and who makes the allegation, and I haven't seen this reported anywhere else, that not only did the whistleblower meet uh, with Mr. Schiff's staff, but he met more than once with Mr. Schiff's staff, and indeed at least once with Mr. Schiff himself. And so there will, there will be a lot to, to dig into here as this all unfolds. You know, in a criminal setting, we, we always take note that even the guilty deserve due process. And I'm not suggesting anyone in this current impeachment inquiry is guilty of anything. Um, but um, even President Trump, no matter what you feel about his politics, his conduct of the office, etc., he deserves due process in an impeachment setting. And if there were um, some, some um, transgressions by the Democrats in the way this was handled at the outset, uh, as I say, it could, it could mean that they wind up tripping over their own shoelaces in their effort to get the president. All right, last question from me, and then we'll wrap it up. If the best transcript that exists has been released of this call, and I have no reason to think that's not the case, whether it's exact, whatever reason, that's the best transcript that seems to exist. So if we already know the content of the call, at least according to the record, does it matter how many whistleblowers come forward, at least in terms of that call, and say what they think about it or what they thought he meant? Or is really that transcript the whole of what's necessary to examine? It isn't, because the whistleblower complaint um, also uh, uh, discussed the treatment of the transcript and how it was sequestered to a special um, filing system that is usually only reserved for uh, highly classified covert operations that have code names and that sort of thing. And look, that honestly might be well within the prerogatives of the commander-in-chief to put his files wherever he likes to Isn't put Isn't it true that started a while ago after some transcripts were leaked? Right. So I think if you're Trump, again, not trying to make his case, but I said when I heard that much, well, he did the right thing, because clearly there are people trying to leak his transcripts, and I, di I didn't understand. Even, even if uh, there had been no prior leaks of calls with foreign heads of state, those are the president's papers. If he wants to put them in safe A as opposed to safe B, it seems to me well within his, his prerogatives as commander-in-chief and chief executive. Well, it's a little different than hiding them. In other words, taking them off out of government property and putting them in some private place where nobody can Even see so, them. Even so, that's his business. They're his papers. But, you know, I think that um, um, ultimately we're talking about more than just the call and more than just the handling of the, of the documents related to it. You've got text messages between various State Department officials that have surfaced. Uh, you've got allegations of an American ambassador being uh, withdrawn from her post. That's the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine? Correct, Yovanovitch. I will say that I'll be doing some writing on this in the near future. She is accused of actually launching an effort to surveil or watch or monitor I think it's six journalists, including John Solomon, who I spoke to recently and had gotten notified by the director of national intelligence that he had been victimized, in effect, through some inappropriate monitoring. He doesn't have all the details. He's waiting to get the papers because the DNI, who's been communicating with him, said, you know, they'll be happy to talk to his lawyer about this privacy invasion. But he said that the allegation was that this U.S. ambassador to Ukraine 
was behind the order to surveil some of these journalists reporting on all of this. What would you or I know of such things? <laughs> and with that, I hope um, people listening to this got some clarity on a few issues. James is so good at that, and I'm so delighted that he's not only on this podcast, but joins us on Full Measure, our Sunday program from time to time. We'll also have your reflections on the Horowitz report, the independent, the Inspector General's report when that comes out. So thank you for joining us. My honor to be with you, Cheryl, as always. And you can subscribe to this podcast and tell your friends about it. I also have another podcast called the Cheryl Ackeson Podcast if you're interested in more original, off-the-narrative reporting. So as always, think for yourself, do your own research, and make up your own mind. Thanks for listening.